0: Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing Podcast. Today, we will be discussing specialization with Philip Morgan. Hey, Philip, welcome.
1: Hey, Reuven, so good to be here.
0: And on our panel today, we've got Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And I am Reuven Lerner. Before we jump into lots of questions, maybe tell our audience, who are you and what do you do?
1: So I'm Philip Morgan. I live in this little town called Taos, New Mexico. So Reuven, I've moved since you and I last spoke. I keep moving towns and changing my identity each time anyway.
0: <laughs> Hopefully doing less damage. <laughs>
1: it's all internal psychic damage. Anyway, about five years ago, I became obsessed with the advantages that would come about from specializing your business. And I'm very interested in helping folks who are indie consultants, freelancers, solo operators, folks running services businesses, and wrote a book about it. And it's funny, when I look back on that book, I'm like, wow, I may have gone a little too far with promising the (laughs) advantages of specialization, But I talked to people who've read the book and, you know, it's all worked out well for them. So maybe I didn't go too far, but I became a zealot for this idea that specialization really is this force multiplier, almost unfair advantage. And have since then been continuing to understand how it works and try to give somewhat more nuanced guidance about how to do it. I'm still a fan of specialization. I've rewritten that book multiple times. It now exists as a book called The Positioning Manual for Indie Consultants. And it's the same basic idea. This is a tool that, you know, small, under-resourced businesses like ours can make use of to make things better. I'm still a fan, and I'm very interested in how indie consultants can build up something like a moat, a defensive advantage around their business by cultivating rare, valuable expertise. That's who I am. That's what I do. I haven't described any services, but that's really the thrust of all of my services.
0: So when I started freelancing, I did something very typical, which is I said, well, I want to serve lots of different people and have the maximum possible reach. And so if I start limiting what I offer people, boy, I'm going to be basically turning down potential work. So what I'm going to do is cast the widest possible net, offer the widest possible set of services, and then I'll have the widest possible set of clients. And I did that for a while, and it was okay. But thanks in part to your book, thanks in part to adopting this mindset, I've become convinced. But I guess my question to you is, why are so many of us convinced that we need to do so many things, like do everything for everyone in order to have a successful business? And similarly, why is that not the case? It seems totally counterintuitive, at the beginning at least, that by telling 90% of the world, no, you're not my potential client, I'll actually do better.
1: The reason why is because we don't believe that there are two lifetimes of opportunity with our name on them. And sometimes there's really good reasons why we don't believe that. Sometimes it's because there's no evidence that there is that much opportunity with our name on it. So, Reuven, you know, if I had wanted to interrupt you, I would have gotten to the point where you were like, this is my strategy, maximize the opportunity. And I would have said, great idea. How's, how did that work out for you? That would have been the moment to do that. <laughs> and maybe you would then tell me a story of it worked sort of OK, but I was struggling or whatever. And I would say, yeah, you actually had evidence that there was not two lifetimes of opportunity with Reuven Lerner's name attached to it. And I would say, well, that's perfectly reasonable to believe that because that's the evidence you were getting. That's, I mean, very simply the answer to your question. We just don't believe that there's two lifetimes of opportunity, or more, obviously, than two.
0: I'll 100% attest to the fact that the moment that I said I'm just doing training, as opposed to programming plus training plus general consulting, things improved. And the moment that I said I'm doing training in Python, things, like, rocketed up. It's, like, demonstrable proof, from my experience at least, that, yeah, the moment that I specialized, I said I'm concentrating on one particular niche, A lot of people then would ignore me, but that's okay because there are so, so many people who are interested in the particular thing that I do. I never would have believed it if I hadn't experienced it myself.
1: Can we go back to what your mindset was before that moment when you made the decision? What was your belief about the amount of opportunity that was available to you?
0: So I think it was a combination of things. I think it was, as you say, like, I believed that there's just not enough work in any particular area. I always go back to this. I was given terrible advice at the beginning of my consulting career, where someone said to me explicitly, don't turn down work, no matter what it is. Why would you do that? And so this was sort of my mantra for a while. And so I explicitly wanted to be everything to everyone, because you never know what direction it's going to come from. But by watering down my brand then, like, I didn't realize I was watering it down. I thought, oh, I'm going to be able to help lots of people. And that's the other thing. I want to help lots of people doing lots of things. And so by saying, oh, I'm just going to do this one kind of help, I was like, well, that's really not very generous of me, as well as good business. But it turns out <laughs> this was just like utterly false.
1: I mean, one of the things we may talk about Every sales conversation for you in that generalist mode was improv night because you're trying to suss out what does this person need so I can become that for long enough to convince them that I can do that. Anyway, you said moment. A lot of times for me when I say moment, I mean two or three years. How long was that transition from? I've made the decision to now things are measurably better.
0: It was probably in two or three years, like, I think what was happening was I was doing training through someone else. And that's when I realized, wow, there's a lot of work just doing training, and I'm enjoying it more. So why not do more of what I enjoy and is more profitable and easier to scale? Like, it was just all the benefits were obvious. and. There were then like a few different times when it became super, super obvious that the specialization was helping me. I mean, one of my favorite stories, I was at a train station in Haifa and someone like sits on the bench next to me, looks at me and says, hey, you're Reuven, you do Python training, right?
1: <laughs>
0: I was like, oh, my God, that's just amazing. Yeah. And that was probably 10 years ago or so. But that really cemented the power of associating my personal brand with one particular set of services. And the more I did that helped. And your point about it being improv night. Wow, I love that. I love that description because, yeah, nowadays, if I get on a call with a training manager talking about Python training, I know more or less what questions they're going to ask. I know more or less how to answer. Yeah. I know entertaining story or anecdote I can use to enhance my position there. Yeah, I don't have to guess anymore. That's a great description.
1: And eventually you kind of get used to that new normal and you take it for granted. But it's so good to remember what it used to be like, the cold sweat, the white knuckles you might have (laughs) had or might have suppressed, but been feeling internally or maybe just are exceptionally confident and have that ability. I call it an ethical bullshitting ability, just that ability to sort of Say Yeah, we can handle that. No, we've never done that before, but it's not that different from this. And like, you know, you surf the waves of unpredictability in the sales conversation. Some people enjoy that. It does get tiresome. I have had a focus on the technology end of the consulting world. And so that's a, for worse, I think a male dominated space. I could speak to a lot of men who are starting to get gray hair and they're getting tired of doing that surfing. So it can be exciting earlier on, but you're like, oh God, when am I just going to show up and go to work and do the thing that I'm best at instead of all these other things?
2: One thing I wanted to ask about that you had said in the very beginning was this idea of like building a defensive moat around your business. Like I'm curious what you mean by that. And if you have like a canonical definition for folks listening that maybe just generalist freelancers, like, what do you mean by positioning or specialty? And especially I'm interested in what you mean about that moat comment, because that's fascinating.
1: I feel like we're going to end up using Reuven as our sort of practical example quite a bit here. <laughs> I know more about Reuven's past than yours, Eric. So maybe you're an equally good example that I'm neglecting, but Reuven has competitors and Reuven has an answer for why someone should hire him rather than his competitors. I don't know what that answer is, but I'd be willing to bet that it's about, I've been doing this for X number of years I wrote the book on the thing or half the students in your class have taken my other class on this thing. And so it's not an appeal to lower cost or efficiency. It's an appeal to the value of expertise. I guess I'm skirting your question a little bit, Eric. The best example I know of here right now of having that kind of moat, that defensive feature in how he's perceived by the market, where the moat is not, I can endure more pain than my competitors and lower my price further. The moat is, I have more expertise. I know one of the things that was, I think, a pivot point for Ruben is really embracing data science. And he already had a sort of beachhead, like a starting point with Python that naturally positioned him for that. But embracing that and saying, you know, I've got more courses, I don't deliver other people's courses, I create the courses myself. These are all things that I'm not totally current with Reuben's business, but we're true at points along the way. And it's not Reuben being kind of smart of me and saying, oh, I'm just smarter than these other competitors. But it's saying I have accumulated more expertise because I've been living in this trench <laughs> that I've dug for myself for a decade now or whatever it is. Specialization, very briefly, is a decision. I think you were also hoping for some definitions and I can supply those. It's honestly something you feel. It's not a total invincibility, but it's a position of strength that comes from your expertise. That's what I mean when I say a moat. But specializing is deciding to focus your business, all of it, in some area, in some way. And market position is a little different. A market position is the result of that decision combined with some implementation. So a market position, you kind of think of your business as a piece on a chessboard, And where are you on that chessboard? Are you thought of as expensive but worth it? Are you thought of as, oh, they have a really deep bench so they can handle big projects? Those are examples of two different market positions. Mm -hmm. So a market position is you saying, I want to be thought of in a certain way. So I'm going to specialize now. I'm going to follow through on that decision. And I'm going to do the thing that terrified Reuven early on in his career. I'm going to say no to things that don't fit And I do that consistently over time. And eventually the market thinks of me in a certain way. That's my market position. So to get a few definitions on the board, those are those definitions.
2: I really like the idea of the moat in that context, because to circle back, I guess, to what I was thinking about, I'm channeling the average freelancer. And a lot of freelancers will write into me through like my site and my blog, asking different kinds of questions. And how do I specialize or what kind of positioning should I have? Those are super common questions. But even preceding those, I think early days, Reuven, and I experienced this myself at one point, like, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. I'm passing on business. I'm a generalist. So I love the idea of formulating a compelling answer to the question, why should I hire you? That isn't just my hourly rate is cheaper or... It's higher, but I'll finish faster. So I'm cheaper in the end. Like Mm -hmm. it seems like if you're a pure generalist, the only answer to the question, why should I hire you, is some flavor of I'm the cheapest. So I like this idea of focusing on like when somebody asks you, why should I hire you? You have a more compelling answer to that question. Does that about sum it up? Am I understanding that right?
1: I think it does. There's a variation of that, why should I hire you answer. And I should note that sometimes that question is asked explicitly. Often it's not. It's just the sort of meta question that prospective clients are trying to answer as they sniff your butt, so to speak, to use dog terminology, <laughs> right? So they kind of check you out and see what you're about. That's the meta question. Why should we choose this option over this other option? And well, there is only one option, but that's often not the case. Anyway, there's another answer other than I have more expertise and that other answer is, you shouldn't hire me. You should sort of buy into this idea that I'm bringing to life in the world. You guys, perhaps at some point, will speak with Jonathan Stark if you haven't already. And, you know, Jonathan Stark, in a way, would say, you should hire me because I've been helping people embrace this idea of a transition away from hourly billing and towards a better way of billing for a long time. And it's kind of obvious why you should hire me. is because I'm the sort of representative of this idea. I'm the advocate for this idea. So there's a variation that's a little bit more advanced beyond just I have the most expertise. But yeah, that pretty much sums it up, Eric. That's what (laughs) I would hope people do. And I think a lot of people should do this because the world changes and it tends to erode other advantages that are not expertise-based advantages.
0: Right. Like, I mean, there's only so long that you can say... I'm cheaper, I'm faster, and that will work for you as a strategy to get clients. And then it's just like a race to the bottom. Yeah, I have these conversations, I'm guessing a few times a month now with new potential clients where they say like, why should we work with you or, or tell us about your experience? Mm-hmm tell us about how your courses are different, something like that. Yeah. And so luckily I know the things that they are looking for to sort of tick off the boxes. Oh, lots of interactions, lots of exercises, you know, real world examples. And I can almost hear them saying, oh good, this is what we're looking for. And it's not that they came in with a checklist that they were looking for, but because I've been doing this for so long now and because I've had these conversations so many times and like sometimes things have worked and sometimes not, so often people will tell me what they want explicitly. I can sort of combine that into a marketing pitch that's basically reflecting back their own thoughts, even if they haven't said it out loud. Yeah. And that's very powerful.
1: Yeah, it really is. Because ordinary people can do that. You know, I was mentioning the sort of ethical bullshitter earlier. That's a sort of talent that some people have, but ordinary people can do a thing for long enough to get to the point that you described, Reuven, where it's just so easy to, not in a hostile way, but to overwhelm a prospective client with how smart you are about this thing.
0: That I've given a lot of thought. It's not just, oh, I'm going to walk in. Sorry, sorry. Yeah.
2: I like that. And for a little context on what I'm doing, I run a business that is providing content to companies that are marketing to software engineers Okay. to describe it in quick general terms. And I can echo the idea that once you have the same sales conversation over and over again, you're telling, you know, maybe similar jokes, you're using similar metaphors that sales conversation starts to feel more like you're giving a talk than the kind of ad hoc discovery. I think a lot of generalist freelancers would do of like, you know, tell me what you need that feeling of the sales presentation or sales conversation being like a talk inspires a lot of confidence in you giving it in my experience, but also you're listing off and rattling off things that the people you're talking to didn't even know to think of. And that's like a really strong sign of expertise in my experience.
1: That's a powerful metaphor. I realize a lot of people fear public speaking. So to say (laughs) during that sales conversation, you're on a stage, not really, but a metaphorical stage and all eyes are on you. A lot of folks are going to be like, no, thanks. That's not what I want. (laughs) But it's not really that way. What you're describing is essentially is a power dynamic of the speaker who has the audience's attention and there's a presumption, you've got something to teach us. And that's great, Eric. That's a really powerful way to describe what happens in the sales conversation. There's a change from, oh, we're vetting you as, as a sort of job applicant to, no, we're listening and we're learning from you. Well said.
2: Yeah, I'm always trying to keep in my mind like the questions that freelancers ask around this. I don't know if this is your experience in working with folks like there's this bit that has to flip. And in the beginning, you kind of think like that isn't possible. What else is a sales call other than somebody grilling me about my background or what have you?
1: Again, some of it is related to that belief that it could be different. And it's hard to grasp what can be different without having experienced it. So that's part of the difficulty, yeah. Maybe for some folks, a gradual or for others, a sudden state change where they believe it. I think that is the essential thing here is like, I believe I cannot feel so terrible in this moment of trying to tell someone about my services. And that's where it begins. Just that belief that you could feel other than terrible (laughs) in that moment. (laughs) Again, with the acknowledgement that some people love the improvisation that happens, but most folks eventually get tired of it.
0: Yeah, that's very apt. It was fun for a while, but I got tired of it. (laughs) I also got tired of hearing, well, you know, it is possible to get out of this feast-famine cycle and fill your schedule months in advance. And I was like, come on, that can't be true. And it is true, but it goes hand in hand with having a very clear message. Yeah. I'm curious, let's say someone is interested in starting up a consulting practice of some sort, you know, freelancing and something. And most of the people I deal with certainly are smart, talented, and have a whole bunch of different directions they can go in. I just spoke to someone two, three days ago who said he's interested in training, so he wants to specialize in that. They said, yeah, I know like 10 different technologies. How does one go about choosing? Like, do they try everything? What's a good sort of system for figuring
1: out what to do? The simple version is really about your relationship to risk. So some people, like a moment should last about two weeks or five minutes. And then the uncertainty needs to be resolved at the end of that. That's not what's likely to happen when you specialize. Or if that's what you need, then be honest about that. I need to make a decision and I need to know the outcome pretty quick. There are cases where great market positions come out of specializing in a way where it was pretty uncertain for a year or two whether this was going to work out or not. And if you can handle that, then you've got access to more options. So that's the first thing is just become real about your ability to manage risk. How do you deal with uncertainty? And can you fund a little bit of a dip in your business as you move to something else? If you can, then you can do more risky, weird stuff. And when I say weird, I want to be clear. I mean that in a neutral way. I just mean unconventional or it's an emerging area of need and there's not as much evidence that it's going to work out, but it could work great. That's more entrepreneurial. So step one, understand your relationship to risk. It's an emotional thing and a physical thing together. It's how you respond to uncertainty. Plus, could you manage, you know, a little downturn or, you know, could you fund an investment of a sort in yourself while things pick up steam? If you cannot handle much risk, step two, pick an area that you have good access and credibility and interest. Make sure that all three of those things align. So, Reuven, you mentioned, okay, I was doing training, I liked it. That's interest. And for most of us, self-employed, freelancer, indie consultant types, if we don't like the thing we do, there are easier ways for us to make money than that thing. So pick something you like, unless you are just like super mercenary in your approach and you're, and, and you're like, no, I don't care. I'm going to build a team. That's the end game. I need the best business opportunity. I don't care if I like it. I will eat broken glass for a while to get something started and then start hiring people and then they can eat the broken glass for me and I'll just collect the checks. If that's your approach, that's fine. You don't need to like it as much, but most of us need to fundamentally like our work. Not every second. There's unpleasant stuff that we have to do. That's fine. So make sure you like it. Make sure you have good access and credibility if you have a lower risk profile. Access and credibility are I can talk to people in the market. I know people in the market. They know me. I'm not starting from scratch. I have access. And then credibility is simply they see you as having some expertise or they see you as a credible option. So make a short list of things that fit those three criteria. And that would be the process. If you have an ability to take on more risk, then you can do stuff where you don't have great access and credibility. You can do things like, you know, making content to use to reach developers. I don't know if this is true of Eric or not, but I'm assuming in this example, Eric doesn't have any previous experience there. It's just something he wants to do. That's fine. Make sure you can handle the risk. That's the ultra short process. Understand your risk profile. Look for good interest, access and credibility And if you can handle more risk, then you don't need as much access or credibility.
2: I really like the idea of access and credibility. And I was actually doing a series of content a while back that was like, people would write into me saying, do you think this makes for a good niche or a specialization, like what I'm trying to do? Mm -hmm. And I would often just kind of on a case by case basis respond, you know, somebody might come to me and say, like, I think developers should learn more about project management. So I want to build a business teaching developers project management. Mm -hmm. And my gut to that is kind of like, eh. (laughs) I think what a lot of people kind of do is they nail the interest part, which is like, this is my skill, or this is what I think I could do. But then access and credibility both bring into play the person or people that you're going to have to sell this to, which I think kind of forces you to ask, is there actual market demand for this? And laying out that exposition to kind of tee up the idea of this question, like, do you have good advice for that kind of self-evaluation When we're talking about access and credibility, for instance, like, do you have a good heuristic or a way for people to know where they're really kind of whiffing on it? Because I feel like there's this chasm where people are like, specializing means I just pick a thing that I'm good at and then full stop. And I try to somehow sell that. Like, do you have advice for freelancers wanting to do this as to how they would assess, I guess, the credibility and the access?
1: There's several things to think about. I mean, one is your track record, and this is going to apply very well for some freelancers who've been doing this for five, 10 years, right? They can look back and they can see where the wins were in their previous client work. And they can make some educated guesses about whether that demand is going to be durable and long term. For example, you know, let's say you were a hyper generalist and you were doing marketing and websites and like 10 different things, right? you say, well, I got more wins when I did the marketing because if for whatever reason, clients seem to trust me with that stuff. And and I was able to you know, grab some low hanging fruit in some cases and in other cases, tackle some tough problems. And they see that's where the wins are. Well, marketing as a discipline is certainly not going away. It will always change as any discipline will, but it's not going away. So it would be very pragmatic for that person to say, that's my form of relative advantage. I have credibility there and if they've done enough work and had enough successes in that area they probably have some level of access so looking at the track record is one eric you kind of highlighted this other case where folks look at their interests and have no insight into the market and they would choose solely based on their interest and i would advise against that in every case because there's easy ways to see what's happening in the market you can look for competition That's the first piece of advice is just look for competitors. Competitors are not businesses or people who are trying to take something from you. They're not trying to steal your lunch. They're not trying to put you in the metaphorical poorhouse. They're just people doing the same thing you're doing. Or if you haven't specialized yet, they are people who have specialized in the way that you're pondering or considering specializing. They're human beings. They're not superhuman. They might be smarter than you. They might be harder working than you, but they are not 10 times smarter than you. That's not possible. They're not 10 times harder working than you. There's not that many hours in the day. So if they can make it work, you probably can too. So that's a really strong indicator that there's market demand. That's a proxy measurement, meaning you're not directly measuring market demand. You're not doing sophisticated market research, which most of us should not do because it's so easy to misinterpret the results. Is someone else out there doing what I think I would like to specialize in? If you can find a few competitors, that's a very strong signal that there's room for more unless it's some weird edge case. I know a guy named Andrew Ward, a really great guy. He runs a business that does consulting for rural telecoms. So those are telecoms in rural areas. He's based here in the U.S., but this would exist in a lot of places around the world. And that's maybe not a growing industry. You know, the fact that he's there doing that is maybe not an indicator that there's room for five more competitors just like him. There's probably not room in that market. But in most markets, if you can find some competition, it's a really good signal. The other thing to think about is the market more like an open or a closed system. So a market that's like a closed system is uh, medicine. If you showed up tomorrow, I'll use myself as an example here and, and said, I would like to help people who need brain surgery. I've decided that I'm very interested in brain surgery <laughs> and would like to start giving brain surgery services. I mean, you guys are laughing for good reason. You see how ridiculous that is. (laughs) That's because that's a closed system. And there's centralized ownership and control for good reason. We don't want people like Philip deciding on Tuesday that on Wednesday, they're going to start their new life as a brain surgeon with no training, certification or anything like that. So in closed system markets, there is more of that kind of control and it can be harder to come in as an outsider. Open system things like, well, Python, AWS, a lot of technology looks like an open system, but other things do as well. If I wanted to say, I can help you with your marketing, there's no central controlling authority who says, I know you can't fill up, you need to take this two-year certification. Open systems are, you know, ownerless and there's a lot more novelty, chaos and flow. So if the thing you're thinking about specializing in is an open system, it may be a lot friendlier to you coming in as an outsider.
2: That makes a lot of sense. By the way, I originally, like when
0: I wanted to sort of shift into training or just do more training. I was super excited about the Ruby programming language. Uh-huh. And when I spoke to a training company about it, they were like, well, send us your resume. Fine. So I sent to them, and they called me back almost right away, and they said, okay, it's very nice you want to teach Ruby, but oh my god, you know Python? We have <laughs> huge demand for that. It's like, that was a moment in time that I realized, okay, I think the market has spoken. I might love Ruby, but several years later, boy, it was the right choice. Absolutely. And I've discovered that what do you know, after lots of exposure and playing with it, I really love Python. So I sort of come around to realize why the market is there, but just because I was super excited about something didn't validate it as a, a specialization, or it wouldn't have been as big or successful as a niche as I've managed to get
1: myself into. That's a really good example. Also, a proxy measurement. So this training company, they have relationships, they have you know a sort of a book of business that they've built up. And they rolled all that up into that years and years that they've spent acquiring that knowledge. And in, you know, maybe literally five minutes delivered to you a market research package. (laughs) I mean, maybe it took less time than that, but essentially they did the market research for you. That's a really great example of another proxy measurement.
0: How can we know? So let's say someone chooses some sort of specialization and they're trying it for a while. What are the signs that it's like a bad choice as opposed to they're just marketing themselves
1: poorly? I think if they've exceeded their risk profile, they will do something I refer to as flinching. What that means is they'll have a moment, and this is not one of those long lasting moments we were talking about. This is a pretty fast moment of like, you know, a day or a week or whatever, where they say, I can't take this anymore. This isn't working. It's like the market doesn't care. And there'll be a sudden rise in emotion. And then they will really feel like quitting or pivoting is the best option. That's what I call a flinch. You suddenly pull back and it's usually not rational, as sometimes it is. But flinching happens when you've done something that's riskier than you should have. Let's say you'd gone the other direction, Ruben, and you'd said, that's very nice about Python, but it's a weird language. It uses all that weird white space. I just don't like it. I'm going for Ruby. And things had gone differently and there'd not been much demand. And so you had made this decision, which is not real until you implement it. Okay, you made the decision. I'm going to focus on Ruby training. And then you start to implement it and you start calling around training companies. They're like, oh, thanks. Yeah, we'll put you on our list of trainers. And then they never call you back. And you get to the point where that was excessively risky for some reason. And you've just had enough and you pull back really suddenly. That's an indication that you made the wrong decision because... Any decision you can't successfully implement is not necessarily a bad decision, but it didn't turn into what you wanted. So in a way, it was a wrong decision. So that's one thing to look for is you feel uneasy about it. That's probably your gut telling you you're doing something that's too risky here. You don't have the patience or the physical capacity to build up what it's going to take to do this. And I hate using digital product startups as an example, but they are an example of, Because they have access to funding very often, they can ride out that difficult part between the idea, the decision, and then sufficient demand to prove that it was a good idea. Individuals like us can't do that. So we're more limited in the kind of entrepreneurial stuff we can do. So one thing is you feel kind of uneasy about it. It doesn't work out well. Every other measure of was it a good decision, sort of post hoc, it's after the fact. It's like, well, how did it actually work out? Very few specialization decisions are permanent. I mean, even houses can be moved, but, you know, where you build a house is kind of where it's going to be until it's no longer a house, until it gets torn down. That's not the case with specialization. In fact, I don't know what Reuben's going to say, but I'm imagining he's going to list a half dozen little minor pivots he's made in his focus. So, Reuben, you, you were initially focused on Python training. What sort of refinements to that have you made along the way?
0: So one of the things I do just about every time that I teach is I go around the room and I have everyone introduce themselves. And that's very nice. Like, I want to know who they are. Mm -hmm. But there are two really important things I want them to say. One is, what's their experience? And that that lets me sort of customize the class. I can say, oh, and for those of you who know Pearl, here are some pointers. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is I ask them, why are they taking the class? And that is my market research, right? That is them telling me what I'm going to be. And so a whole bunch of people have said, well, you know, we want to be using Python for data science. I'd be like, okay. And after I heard this for a year or two, I was like, I got to start teaching data science. And what do you know? Like, that's now a fairly popular course that I teach. So that was a minor pivot. And now I sort of marketed myself as teaching Python and data science. Not that I'm a you know great genius in data science, but I can teach an intro class pretty easily, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And that's more than enough for most places. So it's always like refining it. You know, people would say, well, where do we go to practice now that we're done? say, oh, well, I should really like to do some courses on exercises to practice. I'm constantly trying to listen to what people are telling me, then making those either deepening my specialization or adjusting it somewhat to match the market.
1: I love using the example or the metaphor of a beachhead. a little small place that you land And then from there, you figure out the rest of the journey. That is so much what specialization is like. And that's such a great example that you just gave, Reuven. All the sort of local knowledge about the terrain was revealed to you after you made the first decision. The first decision was specializing in Python training. New information was revealed subsequent. That would have been such high effort to get that information any other way. So what you got is new information about how to adjust course, not in a big, huge pivot, do something totally different way. The market has demand for data science. Oh, the market wants this, the market wants that. I mean, you're smart and careful and make good decisions. But from an effort perspective, it was so trivial for you to get that new information once you had the beachhead. If you tried to get it without having the beachhead, it would have been very high effort to get that same information.
0: Right. And in terms of what you've talked about in terms of risk profiles, I was then able to say, OK, so I should do a data science course. And I spent like two years boning up on it. And then I could start, you know, but I had that sort of time to work on it and get it to where I wanted to be. Not that the first time I taught it was anything good, but like (laughs) that 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 was a separate problem. But really, like I was then able to slowly but surely get toward there. I have to say, like, when I think back to what it was like before I did this specializing and now there's no comparison whatsoever in my business and my peace of mind and in my ability to have, as we've said already, like a good conversation with a potential customer, including saying to people, no, I don't do that. I'm not a good match for you. Yeah. And not feel bad about it.
1: I don't know that this is easy to measure, but I detect in what you said a trust in yourself. So you saw the market said data science. And like that's a thing that you have a PhD, not in data science, but that's a thing some people get PhDs in. And that's that's a problem that folks face when they're first specializing. They look at the unknown and they just don't know what to expect, which is pretty obvious because it's the unknown. (laughs) But you talked about tolerance for doing a bad job the first time, trusting that you would quickly improve. I suspect there was some of that going on when you embarked down the data science route. That's another one of the benefits of specialization is the first time it can be tough. It can be, you know, scary, terrifying, et cetera. But then you build up a trust in yourself. You're like, oh, okay, in three years, I went from embarrassing to impressive. I can do that again. And that's just a beautiful thing to see happen. That's another one of the reasons why I want people to give this idea a chance is because they can start to trust themselves in a new way and they start to realize No, I don't need the PhD. I can figure this out with two years of, you know, just a research initiative or doing a lot of reading for two years or whatever.
2: I hadn't thought of it in these terms before. And, you know, one of the things that I say to people that I'm having conversations with, if they're hesitant about the idea of a specialty is like, this isn't like a marriage contract or something you can tune, you can refine, you can pivot. But like what I hadn't heard or thought of before is what you're surfacing here, which is this idea that like not only can you do that, but like anything else you practice, you will get better at doing that. The time to refine will come down. You'll have more confidence, et cetera. So is that been your experience that if people get used to refining, tuning, overhauling offerings that like over the course of time, they get more efficient at doing exactly that?
1: Yeah, you do. There's a compounding effect and it's in the most beautiful way. It's frightening how good you can become. I mean, the word or phrase world-class is thrown around a lot in marketing and anything that gets overused, I get an instant aversion to. (laughs) So I don't love using that anymore, but you can become world-class at something in five to 10 years. And it's amazing. At the outset of that journey, it sounds like this unthinkable sacrifice. And about halfway through You start to go, wow, this feels great. (laughs) And then it's a continued plateau of effort, but it feels like you're going downhill from there in a good way. You know, it feels like you're picking up speed on a bicycle riding downhill.
0: of the things I love about your book is clearly you've spoken to a lot of people, right? So you know what objections people are going to have and where their worries are. And I was like, wait, if I just do one thing, even if it's Python, which is this huge ecosystem, I'm going to be bored really fast. And I'm just going to be doing the same thing again and again and again. We've already touched on this a bit, I guess, but like, how do you explain to people that this is not a recipe for boredom and you will still be able to have a rich, interesting, varied career, not just parroting the same words day after day?
1: I try to make sure they understand what's actually going on, which is that you are specializing so that you can be a much better generalist. (laughs) So let's think about how that happens. I feel like I've been over-focusing on Ruben, so I'm going to ask Eric some questions about his experience and his story. You specialize and you spend some years being a sort of beginner specialist and you're building up credibility as a specialist and you're getting access to stuff that generally was out of reach before in terms of the kind of projects that you get to do, the kind of work that you get to do. Mm -hmm. And there's this rapid improvement. Let's just say it's two to three years. It could vary for lots of reasons. And then what happens is that you get the air kicked out of you. So things get better and better and you feel like, oh my gosh, the specialization thing is working. I'm getting access to better projects. And then you get a project and it blows up and it goes sideways and it fails and your specialized solution doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work, this is more in a consulting context than anything else, is because you don't have a full grasp on the context that impinges upon the area where you're trying to create a solution. And it blows up. And, and you're like, oh, I'll, I'll shake it off. The next one will be fine. And then maybe the next one is fine. But then very quickly thereafter, another one blows up. And what's happened is that you have gotten access to a problem that is complex enough that your simplified specialized solution doesn't work because it doesn't incorporate enough context. So you're smart, you're dedicated, you don't want to be embarrassed like this over and over again. And so what you do is you start learning about the context. And that's what I mean when I say you become a better generalist, is you actually have to reach out side of your specialization a lot of times and incorporate complementary areas of expertise. And you have to become not as good of an expert on those, but you have to become conversant or fluent. Earlier, I talked about risk. That was why when I was urging people to specialize early on in my career as a specialization expert, things would blow up because I would say, yeah, it sounds like a good specialization. And what I was saying that about is an area that was too risky for them. And so it would blow up. And so I needed to understand how human beings relate to uncertainty and risk. Hmm. And I'm not a world-class expert on that but I have enough fluency in it that I can incorporate that in to deliver a a more complete and appropriate solution that touches on the context. So at no point in this process are you feeling boredom, feeling enthusiasm in those first two to three years. Then you're feeling shame and sometimes humiliation and anger. And then if you make healthy use of those emotions, you turn them into fuel to become not a total generalist, but a very focused specialist who's now mastering something because you understand context. Eric, did that happen to you at any point along the way?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in two different practices I've had, but I was thinking about this as you were talking, and I can give easily a couple of examples with Hit Subscribe, which is a business that, you know, more or less we're supplying usually blog posts, different forms of content to companies, marketing to software developers. We've gotten really good at modeling how we're going to get traffic and readership and such for our clients. A lot of our work is organic search engine traffic. Mm -hmm. And I can think of early on, comparably, so maybe back in 2018, we took on some work that was for someone that would have fit into our normal wheelhouse. But what I would learn after the fact is that there was going to be very little traffic or any effect on the site because the site was doing a series of things that I won't you know, bore everyone with the details of, but basically that were creating massive headwinds for bringing in organic traffic, that they had like technical SEO errors on the site mm-hmm. and all kinds of like best practices, if you will. So the project ended after... Some amount of time because the person was saying, you know, I'm not getting any lift out of this. We've been going for six months and I have no traffic. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that is a source of shame because the whole thing is we were trying to deliver that outcome. And so what I learned is I need to know and go out and learn enough about technical SEO to understand when it's going to blow up our efforts on this other front. And there have been moments like that, you know, another one coming where, say, organic traffic is typically a long game. And somebody needed an outcome sooner. And again, we didn't deliver. Sure, if we had had a year and a half, we would have delivered what they were looking for, but they needed results in six months. Mm -hmm. I don't know a ton about pay-per-click advertising, but I do now know enough about it to say, like, if you have a six-month time window, we don't want to do this business. You should go out and advertise. Uh, Organic traffic is a longer game. so. Your point really strikes home with me, which is I'm not interested in having our business become like an advertising agency, nor am I interested in getting into like repairing people's sites from technical SEO. But we need to know enough about those things to make good recommendations around our core offering.
1: And that's the difference between chasing shiny objects and focused learning in a complementary area to support the core expertise. That's what you were doing is the ladder. So, you know, chasing shiny objects is unfocused, unguided. Oh, that's interesting. I want to learn about PPC or I want to learn about technical SEO. But in your case, there was a clear reason to acquire that knowledge, which was to deliver a better, more reliable, lower risk, more effective, higher ROI solution in your core expertise. Mm -hmm. It's a great example. I didn't know that that's what you were going to say, but I did know that almost anyone who specialized for long enough to get past that difficult middle part will have some story like that. And I'm sure Reuven has something like that as well, where he has to learn about I don't know. What was the, the context you had to incorporate, Ruben?
0: Look, I've, I've had to learn all sorts of technological stuff to suit my clients. Like they'll say, well, we really want your course, but you have to concentrate on something that I never did before in my course. Right. And so I had to go off and learn that. And now I just spoke two days ago with a client in the finance world. And he said, so we're going to want to have some specialization in finance in your courses. And my thinking is fantastic, right? Because the delta between what I already teach and what they want for finance is probably very small, but the value to them will be huge. And then I have a new thing that I can offer people in the finance world. So like, it's a big win for everyone, but it does mean having to like, you know, go and learn new stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, we see this in the software world. It's like so easy for Google to add another feature or capability compared to some companies starting from zero. It's a sort of, you know, scale advantage in their case. It's easy to make our solution way better with just a little bit of learning because we're already so far down the road. Mm -hmm. So the question that sparked this was, is it ever going to get boring? That's why it won't. It does, of course, require that you stick with it for a while. And that's why you want to try to make the best decision you can. You know, you're setting up a a thing that's like a five, 10-year thing. And so it needs to have some consistency over that time period. Of course, you can make these pivots we talked about, but there needs to be some kind of through line that goes through sufficiently to deliver all these benefits we're talking about.
0: We've talked for a while now, I guess. Eric, you have any final questions before we wrap up and move on to picks?
2: We probably ought to wrap up, but I guess before going on to picks, so like, you know, Philip, where can folks go to learn more about you, find out more about what you're doing?
1: I've been putting a lot of energy lately into publishing stuff that folks don't have to opt into. They can just read. So if they go to Philip Morgan Consulting, there's one L in Philip, and there's a start here button at the top of the page. That's a starting point. I mean, I have a book that I want to promote, which is called The Positioning Manual for Indie Consultants. It's available on Amazon and available as print and Kindle. And I think that may actually, from a sort of a value perspective, might be the most condensed thing I have to offer. So, you know, 10, 20 bucks, depending on which version you get. And I think you'll get an overview of this that seeks to be as condensed and concise as possible. I threw away a 60,000-word version of this book so I could publish a, I don't know, 25,000-word version. (laughs) So I'm not joking around when I say, you know, condensed and concise. That's where I would send folks. And then if they see something there that they want to try to implement, there's various forms of support I have for that. But that's a good starting point, I
0: think. And I think I mentioned earlier, but I very strongly recommend the book. It's great. I've spoken with no small number of people just even the last few months who are thinking of freelancing and told them that they should read this to to get some perspective on what to do. So he might be promoting his own book, folks, but I'll help him promote it because it's worth it.
1: Thanks for that, Ruben.
0: And with that, maybe we'll move on to picks. Uh, Philip, do you have anything to share with us, maybe? I don't know if we warned you in advance about the pick thing.
1: You know, I remember the picks, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm unprepared. Could I pick one thing, which is I think everyone should own an electric bike, even if you're not into biking. My wife and I have been loving these, and I realize this is not a low cost, easy thing for it to acquire. These things cost money and they are such a source of joy for my wife and I. We have a pair of electric fat tire bikes. And it has been the most delightful thing to do. It's gotten us out during COVID lockdown and quarantine and so forth. And I realize that's winding down in a lot of places and we still ride them a lot. So I think that's something I can pretty enthusiastically pick here.
2: I don't have anything particularly germane for whatever reason this week, but I will throw a single nod out to so our business hit subscribe has a community that we built, and it started as if you're looking for like an engineering related side hustle, writing blog posts, for instance, if you wanted to write for hit subscribe, but we kind of grew this to be more like hustle oriented entrepreneur community. So basically, it's a good resource for people that are thinking of going independent or have recently gone independent, or you're just curious. So we have this community, which I'll include a link to, and so that is is my pick this week.
0: Excellent. And I'm going to pick a book that I just finished reading a week or two ago. It's called Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning by Tom Vanderbilt. And basically, I think roughly 50 year old journalist decided to investigate what it's like to learn something, a completely new skill. And so he learned uh, to surf. He learned to like swim in the ocean. He uh, learned to sing. He learned to play chess. He learned a whole bunch of different things. And I thought it was fascinating and fun why it's important for us to learn new things even as adults and it was very insightful very interesting and he has many funny anecdotes in there as well definitely worth looking at all right and with that i guess we will wrap up the episode thank you so so much for joining us insightful and fun to talk to you as always
1: thanks for having me it was a delight to be here with you
0: Thanks to all you listeners out there. We are always curious to hear from you. We want to hear what subjects would be of interest to you and help you improve your freelancing. So please do get in touch with us. And we will be back next time on the Business of Freelance.